Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's time, as Chris said, for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett and I will be here until 5.30 this afternoon. Today, corruption allegations could mean the end of the Malaysian Prime Minister, Najib Razak. I'll be speaking with Praveen Nagalan, who's a Malaysian activist now living in Australia. The 2015 Pacific Games, which were held in Port Moresby, PNG, over a couple of weeks, where some issues remained hidden. I'll be speaking with Ronnie Carini, who's a staff member here at 3CR who um, didn't quite get what he needed when he went there. 70 years since the atomic bomb dropped on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which one rationale concludes that it was an ineffable act of state terrorism committed by the United States. But that's not something that Associate Professor Tilman Rush is going to talk about. He's going to talk about lots of things, including how the bomb got to be there in the first place. And Tillman is Associate Professor in the Nossal Institute for Global Health at Melbourne University and is also an International Health Advisor to the Australian Red Cross. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, I think he's had a Bronwyn week. A week, Jane, listener, when ecclesiastical events dominated, the domination of the bishops, or, well, the bash-ups. Bronnie bash-up the socialists. How we feel for poor Bronnie, listener. In the circles in which the week that was moves, it's been nothing but sympathy. Julie bash-up the workers and former Ballarat representative of the dear baby Jesus bash-up the victims, Ron Mulcair's Little, who turned up in court in just another case of just another priest victimising children to swear by almighty God he couldn't recall a thing about how he covered up and shuffled the pedophiles around. His take-up-thy-bed-and-walk performance, presumably to assist the accused, now looks like landing him before the Royal Commission where his sick bed had previously, conveniently, excused him. And Bronnie finally said sorry and then became even more sorry when there was some scepticism about how that sorry and... Thus, her successful crusade to clear Parliament of the Socialists came to a sad end, especially as Bonnie made it clear she had done nothing wrong, amassing several trillion in within the guidelines public purse expenses. I'm just wondering, Bonnie, would you have said sorry and then resigned if you hadn't been sprung? I don't follow that. That's why I'm sorry. But but you said it was a question of judgment. Certainly. I judged I wouldn't get sprung. By the by, got any weddings this week, Bronnie? Oh, no answer. She, she's gone. She's dashed off to fill out her saying I'm sorry and resigning expense form. Poor Bronnie resigned because the voters weren't resigned to accepting just an apology, sincere and genuine as it was. As most caring business class party MPs generally went a bit lukewarm on supporting Bronnie, her colleague and leader of the House under her neutrality, Christopher Payne in there, said he was standing firmly behind her as Speaker. Uh, why? 
She gets rid of all those dreadful socialists in no time, makes it a much more pleasant workplace, uh, and she has explained the situation, and I accept that explanation, he squeaked. Worry here, listener, is that this man is the Minister for Education. Uh, so you accept her explanation and ignore the evidence, Christopher. Look, yes, it's similar to climate change. The evidence is socialist bias, socialist propaganda, aided and abetted by that socialist sympathiser, Lord Rupert of Wapping. It, it is silly to say education should look at all sides of issues when there is only one side. There, there would be no other side, no unscientific, totally illogical side if it were not for the socialists. Christopher was last seen Sunday seemingly wiping all this egg from his face. Must have been breakfast time, but top marks for timing, just as Bonnie was resigning to that talented bundle of competence and aptitude, hayseed and sheepshit party giant mind, Barnacle Jokes, who praised Bonnie to the hilt and said every Polly would be in trouble if her or his expenses were analysed. Very clever, because that should presumably lead to Barnacle's expenses coming under the microscope, being gone over with a fine tooth comb to mix our metaphors. Oh yeah, let's give it to him. Barnacle, you've picked up the perfect timing of the week award. And obviously he's right up there in the inner sanctum of being kept informed. Ronnie's biggest supporter, of course, was Big Supremo Tiny, a bit more for the bosses, who said she didn't have to resign after all. She'd given her sincere apology, and her resignation was no admission she'd done anything wrong, because the fault, if there was a fault, lay in the system. The fault lies not in ourselves, but in our stars, as the Bard wrote, and despite inquiries making strong recommendations for change, totally ignored by Tiny and Bronnie and co, all we need now is another inquiry destined for a dusty shelf somewhere. And Julie bash up the workers berated Russia for vetoing her motion to condemn Russia, because Julie and Tiny know Russia did it. It was a disgrace that a country would use its veto this way. She was so angry. You don't see our very, very close friend, the US of the UN of the US of the world, abusing its right of veto. It uses it responsibly to protect its, and therefore our, very, very close friend, Zion. <coughs> We may recall in 2012, resource digger-upper and MP Clive Parmagina was hailed for True Blue Aussie's greatest act of philanthropy when he established a 100 million charity foundation. Well, we're pleased to announce that at last count, this greatest act had all of $104 in it, just the odd 990 grand whatever short which, in fairness, is $4 more than it had in it last year. But Clive explained it was to receive royalties from this Chinese partnership, this company he's now suing, so don't blame, blame Clive, blame the bloody commies. It's always the bloody commies or the greenies or the terrorists. And who knows where the extra $4 came from. In sport, the big news has been booing a dual Brownlow medal and dual premiership player who proudly upholds his aboriginality, but great thinkers like former celebrity centre-forward Tim Witt brought it on himself, said he was sick of all these black people in the outer booing players just because they're white. In the other matter, <clears throat> booing is just part of the game. It, it's not racist. 
See, some people, not necessarily Demwit, Dimwit or former Brisbane publicity seeker Jason Backer racist, concede it may be 25% racist, but then Adam Goods plays for free kicks. Gee, that must come as a shock to every other player at every level. No one booed little Kevy Bartlett and they'd have changed the rules thanks to him. And this year they've changed the round-the-neck rule for the same reason. And Adam embarrassed a 13-year-old girl just because she called him an ape in the Indigenous round. How dare he spontaneously react? And, and don't worry that when he learned she was 13, he said he didn't blame her, but blamed the racist environment. And as truly was the of the year, he outrageously raised Indigenous first people issues. What an insult to the white majority. Just cop the award and shut up. Or show his appreciation by thanking we whites for the great things we've done for his people. Now these, it's not racist, or maybe just a little bit, people argue, there's these other issues. Maybe Dimwit and Jason et al. can explain which bit of booing because he was upset at being called an ape, and which bit of booing for raising Indigenous issues as True Blue Aussie of the Year is not racist, on which also not racist. Given True Blue Aussie's propensity to grovel before, uh, sorry, adopt the great culture of the US of, we can expect law changes any time sensibly declaring crossing a line without giving a signal and driving after your front number plate has fallen off a capital offence, more so a summary justice capital offence, execution on the spot, sort of the execution version of on the spot fines, with the obvious qualification that the offender must must be black. And well, given our legal system already has the black criminal situation under control, by sensibly again making being black a crime, that shouldn't pose any problems at all, other than we've tended to wait to get them back to the cells before the summary execution. Not executing the environment, well, we see it, or we see all its ads telling us how that great US of resource giant shove on the profits so cares about the environment at local communities as it establishes offshore mining and onshore workers' facilities at and near pristine Barrow Island off western True Blue Aussie. No risks whatever. It is now battling, uh, battling the bloody True Blue Aussie Tax Department, which reckons it sent several billion, literally several billion offshore, to related companies to, as if, avoid tax. Come on. We care. We really care about the environment, the great responsible company responded. And we oppose any move to destroy the tax-free environment we so care about. Um, what about the environment on Barrow Island, indeed in all the mines and projects you have around the world? Certainly, all those sites are part of a tax-free environment we love, we so care about. Tragedy, they seem to be having a bit of trouble sorting out this Trans-Pacific Free Trade Agreement. Unfortunately, some selfish, minor, nondescript countries like, like True Blue for instance, seem to think free trade for us, after all, us is spelt U.S., extends to free trade for them. The U.S. have made a very strong point. They have no respect for the Washington rules, the Washington World Trade Rules. Uh, but you keep telling us we are your closest of close friends. And you certainly are. Uh, 
Uh, which lackey, sorry, which country did you see you were again? The troubler was the Minister for Trading Our Rights, Andrew Robb. No need to play with his name. Andrew disputed the US of claim. As a very, very close friend and comrade in train killing, we have jumped every time the US of has said jump. We are a true friend of the US of. But Andrew, isn't it called the Trans-Pacific? Yeah, yeah, that's right, the Trans-Pacific US of Trade Our Rights Treaty. Finally, this study shows Tiny's indirect inaction climate change's crap policy will allow Trublowazi's top 20 polluters, including our very own brown coal power stations, to increase their pollution. That's right, Tiny nodded. This report proves that indirect inaction is working, that indirect inaction is not crap. Good afternoon. And that was Mr Kevin Healy with his week that was. And tomorrow morning, it's a different story. It's City Limits with Corey Green from 9 until 10 with Mr Kevin Healy. And you are listening to Melbourne's community radio station, 3CR, where the time now is coming up to 13 minutes past 4 o'clock. You could be listening on your old radio, 8.55am, on your digital radio, 3CR or through your computer, 3cr.org.au, either streaming or listening in the next week, or you can have this program podcast to your computer. And that all happens, 3cr.org.au. This is the moment. This is the moment of miraculous activist activity. Imagine this. The 5th Annual Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair will bring together an exciting range of independent booksellers, zinesters and activist groups. The book fair showcases more than 40 stalls and a program of workshops. Come along to celebrate books, pamphlets and zines, including radical fiction, the anarchist classics and cutting-edge radical writers from around the world. It's a great opportunity to be introduced to new ideas, to challenge your thinking and to network with like-minded folks. It's free, and we also provide free childcare. It's all happening at the Abbotsford Convent on Saturday, August 8th from 10am till 6pm and with an after-party in a squatted space late into the night. Find out more at www.amelbournebookfair.org or find us on Facebook. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair, because another world is possible. The Anarchist Book Fair is a 3CR supporter. The fact that Malaysia is one of the most corrupt nations in the world with high levels of bribery, corruption, electoral fraud and cronyism in both business and government levels is no surprise to political and human rights activists in Malaysia and elsewhere. What in fact is different in 2015 is that the scandals this year could see the demise of the PM, Najib Razak. Malaysian activist Praveen Nagapan is with me today. Praveen, why is it different this time compared to the past? I think what's happened is the corruption in Malaysia has really come to its peak between last year and this year, 2014-2015. Touching on on this issue of uh, a public investment fund, the One Malaysia Development Berhad. That's a public investment fund whose advisory board is chaired by the Prime Minister, Mr. Najib Razak. 
the fund had invested billions in borrowed money in what is alleged to be severely overpriced assets, with the excess making its way, it's alleged, to individual coffers. I guess what's the difference between now and before? In this day and age, these sort of matters are easily highlighted through the likes of social media. So I think that's what really made the difference. And the magnitude of what we're talking about as well is it's quite present. What is the magnitude of this this scandal and, and whose money is it? So it's the money of the people, really. Uh, and the magnitude we're talking about is uh, the fund, I understand, is valued at something like 52 billion ringgits. The amount in contention is the borrowings that back that uh, that value that's to a tune of 42 billion ringgits, something like $11 billion dollars. The allegations are taking a step back. To get these borrowings, the fund had paid what appears to be astronomical fees to a global investment bank to secure the needed borrowings in the bond markets, and this was in addition to monies borrowed domestically. Problems started appearing when, following a second extension for two billion ringgit repayment earlier this year, the fund came close to defaulting. So that raised concerns about the fund's ability to pay its other much larger obligations, chiefly a, a $7.4 billion denominated uh, debt. The international community is not fully convinced, though, that the saga is entirely over now that the ringgit is at a 16-year low, and that's at the Asian financial crisis levels. Where the funds have gone to, coming back to your question, it's alleged that the root cause for this inability to repay or the extensions for the repayment. It's alleged that the root cause for that, among other things, was the alleged overpayments for assets being channeled to individual coffers. The allegations are quite shocking. The allegations include channeling of 2.6 billion ringgits to what appears to be the Prime Minister's personal account. That's the Prime Minister himself. That's what the allegations are. Was there a whistleblower? There was a whistleblower, as far as I understand. In fact, there was a whistleblowing website from overseas called the Sarawak Report. It was a London-based whistleblower website, if you like. And what's been the reaction by the government to these claims? I'd like to think of it as how the government has dealt with the situation. Or, In addition to the parliamentary opposition, the 1MDB saga, the 1MDB is this fund that we're talking about, the 1MDB saga is starting to be a point of contention from within Mr Najib's party in itself. That's becoming a bit of a problem. So Mr Najib has taken several measures to manage the situation. Among other things, he has replaced his deputy, who had been critical of his handling of the scandal. He has sacked the attorney general, who was part of a team investigating the scandal. He has also replaced several members of his cabinet with members of the Public Accounts Committee, which is a parliamentary crossbench audit committee, if you like. So what this means is him having replaced members of his cabinet with members of the Public Accounts Committee, these individuals have had to relinquish their roles within the Public Accounts Committee due to a conflict of interest, essentially bringing the investigations to a halt. So he's also suspended the printing licenses of two publications, which were pioneers in breaking the scandal. And he has also warned the Wall Street Journal of potential lawsuits for their reporting of the scandal. What's been the media like in Malaysia itself? Have they reported any of this? Or most of the media in Malaysia is controlled by the government? It is, it is. But then things surprisingly have somewhat changed over the last, over the, over the years. So it's 2015 now and the printing license of two publications have been suspended. 
two Malaysian publications have been suspended for their reporting of the, in fact, for their breaking of the scandal. So local media is reporting on it. That's a good feel in itself. It's quite unfortunate because social media has, up till now, served a great purpose in shedding some light on um, these allegations, if you like. But what has happened now is that there's talk of social media policing following strengthening of colonial era sedition laws to cover online media as well. So essentially, for lack of better words, censorship of social media, censorship by fear. Tell me why the situation has got so bad in Malaysia that a scandal or alleged scandal of this degree could have happened. It's not something that happened overnight, right? What, what really comes as a surprise is the most vocal critic from within Mr. Najib's party is the former Prime Minister, Dr. Mahadir. And the reason why it says it comes as a surprise is that it is widely claimed that it was during Dr. Mahadir's time as Prime Minister when a variety of control mechanisms, if you like, were removed in favour of speedy progress. For example, the ability for the Prime Minister to influence judicial appointments took place during Dr. Mahadev's time. It's widely perceived that it would have only been a matter of time before these allowances and conflicting responsibilities would be exploited by those who had the ability to do so. With the government of the day having been in office for nearly 60 years in some form or other, although unfortunate, it is only natural that this sort of thing has become the norm now. In a functioning democracy, the system would correct itself by voters replacing legislators as they fell below par. Unfortunately, due to relaxed electoral measures and wide-arching gerrymandering, the bad has been recycled time and time again in Malaysia. There are also allegations that some of this money was used to support the government for the, the last election, which the government nearly lost. Can you talk about that at all? I don't have the statistics on that, but I will go back to a point I made earlier on the allegation specifically that 2.6 billion ringgits has been channeled into the prime what appears to be the prime minister's personal account. An extension to that allegation is that those monies were utilised in the election campaigning. Now, these are allegations, but they are fairly serious allegations. So the prime minister has not denied that the money has gone into these accounts, which appears to be his personal accounts. But he has made a statement that these monies were not used for personal gain. So which then begs the question on what the money was used for. Who are the people or who is the body that's investigating this? There were chiefly four bodies, as far as I'm aware. Malaysia's Reserve Bank, also known as the Bank Negara Malaysia, the Auditor General's Office, the Anti-Corruption Agency, and then the Public Accounts Committee. Are they independent as the government? In principle, they are. But as I mentioned before... The means in which some of these appointments are made, they are influenced by the Prime Minister, or rather they are made on the advice of the Prime Minister. This is unprecedented, isn't it, though, in Malaysian history, because for decades now governments have got away with lots and big business has got, got away with lots. This is the, maybe the first time that the people of Malaysia actually are finding out maybe what the government or business leaders might be up to. Is that correct? It is unprecedented for two reasons. One is its magnitude, sheer magnitude. That's very unfortunate. But it is also unprecedented from a, if you like, I'd like to think of it as a positive, the fact that the people are able to 
discuss these matters, not in a comfortable environment, as, a, as we've discussed, but the people have been able to shed light on this. So I think for a change, there's actually an opportunity here to tackle the situation. It doesn't appear easy, but the fact that it's out in broad daylight is telling. And what are opposition parties doing at this time? As far as opposition goes, there is opposition from even within Mr Najib's own party. In addition to that, the the parliamentary opposition themselves are also taking this very seriously. But the opposition themselves, they have issues that they are facing. One of these issues is, for lack of better words, recent breakup of the opposition coalition. And also, more seriously, the opposition leader, the de facto opposition leader, Mr. Anwar Ibrahim, is in his 160th or so day of political imprisonment. And imagine what's different this time is that the world leaders have known about the corruption within Malaysia for many years, but this is being discussed worldwide now, isn't it? They can't put the genie back in the bottle. Yeah, that's right, that's right, Jan. They can't put the genie back in the bottle. So I've been involved in Malaysian activism from Melbourne for about between three and five years now. Over the years, I have grown a little disenfranchised with what or how much overseas support we can receive as Malaysians. The reason I say that is recently David Cameron was in in Kuala Lumpur and he's supposed to have raised his concern about the situation of Prime Minister Najib. And at the end of that article, it was stipulated that Mr Cameron was concerned, goes on to speak about how Mr Cameron was also pitching the opportunity for Malaysians to invest in a £17 billion infrastructure projects in the UK. I'm not convinced, to say the least. In the end, it's the people of Malaysia who suffer in this, isn't it? It's their That's money. Right. That's right. It's the people of Malaysia who suffer the consequences. And I think it's only the people of Malaysia, including Malaysians overseas, who are best placed to tackle the situation. It comes back to what the electors can do and what the electors, voters, should do. Uh, I'd like to briefly touch on on Batu from here. Civil society and rights groups seems to seem to have taken a leading role in complementing the parliamentary opposition and members from within the ruling coalition that appear to have found an elusive voice. Finally, the coalition for free and fair elections called Bursay has uh, raised these and other concerns with the hope of reform. Their demands include clean elections, clean governments, salvaging a tanking economy and the right to dissent. Proponents of the view that Malaysia is a mature democracy need to understand that these are not traits of a mature democracy. Good enough is no longer good enough. To this end, the group has called for a mammoth rally of freedom-loving Malaysians on the 29th of this month in Kuala Lumpur and other global cities. The authorities have cautiously given the go-ahead, although some activists were hauled up over the weekend on what appears to be, or what is said to be, related matters. The last time this group held a rally in 2012, not only was it participated by some 300,000 people, solidarity rallies were also held globally in close to 90 cities, major Australian cities, reflective of the number of Malaysians who have migrated overseas, tired of the situation at home. So this time around, this August 29th, solidarity rallies are being planned in major Australian cities, including Melbourne. So Jan, we would love to see you there as well if you've got the time right, if not to support our cause, at least to understand the plight of Malaysians who have 
migrated overseas, just fed up of the situation at home. We'll talk about that closer to the day on 3CR. Are there any dangers for the people organising the rally now and people going out in the streets? Because I know in previous rallies where people have been arrested, people have been injured. The police in Malaysia, well, take a step back. So when I talk about solidarity rallies, the rallies overseas in global cities has been no problems. We've got support from the local police for all you like. So it's been fantastic overseas, and that's the way it should be. But in Malaysia, what's happened is the authorities in the past, you're quite right, have clamped down quite seriously on these rallies. Now, though, the situation has changed, and I believe the police have learned from past experience. Police and authorities have learned from their past experience. So the authorities, as I mentioned earlier, have cautiously given the go-ahead. But as I mentioned, how committed they are to that is questionable, because over the weekend, there were a number of activists, close to 30 activists, who were hauled up on what is said to be unrelated matters. Again, not all that convincing. And what happens to people when they're so-called hauled up? So there's, there's not much, at least not that I know of, violence involved. But it is uncomfortable. These people have not broken the law, so to speak. It's intimidation at best. So people are held. For example, if you're hauled up over on a Friday, you're held for questioning over the weekend. And these are people who have not broken the law. It's a bit unfair, a bit below the belt. Can I ask you, Praveen, what group that you belong to here in Melbourne? So I'm part of a Malaysian diaspora activist group in, in Melbourne. They're known as Sayana Bangsa Malaysia, which literally translates to I'm a child of Malaysian origin. And what we advocate is for cleaner governance in Malaysia and for racial unity in Malaysia. And that was Pravan talking about the ongoing allegations of scandals. Well, they are scandals, but ongoing allegations of um, corruption in Malaysia, which maybe could be bring down the government. I think that's not quite sure how likely that is, but it's certainly the people of Malaysia are learning a lot more about what goes on in their business and politicians than they have for quite a long while. It's 4.29. The Melbourne Street Medics need your help. On Saturday the 18th of July, when we took to the streets against Reclaim Australia, Victoria Police pepper sprayed the crowd. We treated more than 100 people and we're asking you to donate to help restock our kits and train up new medics. We believe in empowering people to fight for a better world. Please help us to care for those who stand up for our rights. Please go to ozcrowd.com and search for Melbourne Street Medics or go to the Melbourne Street Medics Facebook page for more information on how to donate. At 17 seconds after 8.15, on the clear, bright morning of August 6, 1945, an atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, Japan. August 6 and 9 marked 70 years since the U.S. atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which claimed more than 200,000 lives. Join the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, ICANN, for Australia's first ever screening of the extraordinary 1953 film Hiroshima. Thursday, August 6th at 6.30, Collide Theatre, Melbourne. 
bookings at icanw.org.au. Proceeds support ICANN's work to ban and eliminate the 15,000 nuclear weapons that exist in the world today. ICANN is a 3CR supporter. Two weeks ago, the Pacific Games 2015 in Papua New Guinea was reported as ending with fireworks, grass skirts and a sample of the Pacific rich and diverse culture. But there were some areas of culture excluded, as we'll hear shortly. But first, Ronnie Carini, current affairs coordinator at 3CR and a member of the West Papuan band Black Orchids, talking about the history of the Games. This year, Papua New Guinea hosted the 15th Pacific Games in Port Mosby. And given um, the bit of the background of the Pacific Games, uh, six years ago, PNG bid to host the Pacific Games. And PNG has been very proud of itself, given that um, it's, uh, it's developing. So it wanted to show that it's ready to host such event through sport. I was invited to go up to participate in the closing ceremony as an artist, musician. And so that was a great privilege for me to be contacted and going up there to participate in that closing ceremony. Prior to that, you know, I was contacted by the Makoda Production. Makoda Production is contracted by the government to organize the opening and closing ceremony of the Pacific Games, in which the opening ceremony was spectacular and it really showed the richness in diversity and cultures of Papua New Guinea in which it was a world standard of the of an opening ceremony and so expectations were an anticipation of the closing would be the same and bigger and with that same vibe i went up there just a um, few days leading up to the closing which is on the 18th of july my first impression was that PNG changed within uh, you know, the space of um, six months when I first um, came to PNG, especially at the airport, the international airport. It was upgraded. It's like you walk into a Melbourne Talamarine airport, given with all the shops and, yeah, the tiles, the glasses, the windows, like, whoa, one would wonder where the, all this money come from. Yeah, and all the way, um, the roads, they just build a, a quick, like a freeway from the airport straight to um, various places rather than going through the local um, suburban roads. And so that was amazing, a good feeling, and to see how everyone were together in supporting the local, especially, helped to keep and maintain calm and peace in throughout the two weeks. So, you know, tourists and athletes felt like they're at home. And so that was a good um, atmosphere and feeling. Did you go as an individual or did you go with the band? As an individual going up there, but I know that there are other members in the band who are coming from Melbourne going up to PNG. But the organizers kind of individually book our tickets and everything. And the funny thing was that um, perhaps it's, you know, whoever is in the um, working on the books and um, organizing the um, flights and all this didn't realize that would be good to book us as a group rather than individual because at the end of the day when we arrived there some of us got excess luggage just like a kilo or two but then we can't so we have to pay the excess luggage and so that wasn't good enough but when we were there met with various other pacific island musicians and artists who also arrived on the same day and the day after i was um, told that I'll, I'll be playing 
the bass to the song for George Stalek, which is West Papua. And that song has been popular since um, he released that, the reggae version of that song, West Papua. So, and Telek has been very much prominent in addressing um, social issue, corruption issue, poverty issue in PNG. And he's been a voice face for PNG through music um, in Australia and globally. He felt that that song is very appropriate to sing at, the, at such event. And so he's been rehearsing that song with two West Papuan girls who are refugees in Papua New Guinea, like myself, we were born and grew up in PNG. That was all rehearsed like the week before, even I wasn't there, they already rehearsed. So by the time I went there, and they said, okay, you'll, you'll get on the bass and play the bass part of this song. So I was so motivated and looking forward that, yes, there's going to be that moment when this song is going to be sung, the word will speak to the, the audience. And everyone was so excited, um, even the musicians, um, the artists coming from Hawaii, Samoa, Tahiti. During rehearsals, people kind of like really get in, engaged into like, you know, this song. And because the West Papua was in the word in itself and freedom, it's kind of like they can connect. They said, oh, they understand. And so leading up to it until Thursday, so two days later, one of the Pacific Games committee came and heard the song during the rehearsals, it just raised some alarm, I guess. We didn't know. We rehearsed already, and then on Friday night, just after we finished all the rehearsals, like the big uh, run-through, and everyone knowing you know, the timing, you, when you have to be on stage, when you have to be off. And then at night, after we finished every rehearsals, everyone were in high spirit and very positive, looking forward for tomorrow, Saturday, the 18th of July, we're going to just go on stage and deliver exactly what we rehearsed. There was a meeting Friday night from the Pacific Games Committee. That meeting, basically, um, the office of the Prime Minister told the Pacific Games Committee that they have to know what song, what dance, what is the, the, line, the, the, the schedule for the closing ceremony. They wanted to know by tomorrow midday, Saturday midday. And that was the statement that came from the government's office to the Pacific Games Committee. And Pacific Games Committee, the director herself, uh, went to Makoda Production, told them that we need to see the, the schedule. And they literally went through all the songs. They said that no anti-corruption songs, no songs for West Papua, that George Stalek, because the word West Papua was written, he said they just literally crossed it out. And there was intense um, negotiations behind closed doors. But from our end, we only hear after the rehearsal on Friday night that there was a meeting because the TV news and the radio news, they wanted to know what will be on the schedule in the closing ceremony. No one were told as well. So everyone were left in suspense and wanting to know what's going on, um, why the committee and this production team didn't release the schedule for the closing ceremony. By Saturday, when we went for the sound check, and George Telek was told during sound check that he is not allowed to play that song West Papua. Right at the last minute. Virtually, it was the pressure from the government. There is another thing that is also going on, a controversy um, in the opening ceremony in which the Pacific Games Committee, through the Makoda production, 
did add a word into the national anthem, it's about equality. The second line, it says that, Oh, arise, all you sons of this land. They only add the word daughters. Oh, arise, all you sons and daughters of this land. To address that there is that diversity in the gender and like in addressing equality, like with women as well participating. And But then some of the churches group leaders uh, raised it up to the government and felt that um, the second verse was dropped out. And then why adding this word, daughters? And so that becomes the big um, controversy, which they said that everyone who involved in that opening should be arrested for six months at least. So there were some threats given to the Makoda production. So that was that fear that in the opening that has kind of like implied into the closing ceremony when um, the, gov- the government said we need to make sure the closing ceremony is nothing controversial and nothing you know, anti-corruption, whatever awareness you wanted to raise during that um, stage. And so that was on Saturday, and it also still you know, raises the question, why? Why on the day they said we're not allowed? And one thing that is really intriguing that I felt as well was that they didn't allow George Stalek to at least choose another song during the rehearsals let's say, at least three or four songs that he has to rehearse. And so at the closing, if they, you know, one is dropped, then he's still got a couple more others that he can still play that. But this wasn't the case. And it really upset. They, it just changed the dynamics, and um, everyone felt like something is wrong here. How did George react? The energy just drops. And his first reaction that he came and find me, and he said, Ronnie, we're not singing that West Papua song. And I feel like this song, a lot of the people in Papua New Guinea love to want me to sing this song. As he said, I've performed this song at the Olympic Games in London. I've performed this song at various um, um, festivals and concerts outside Papua New Guinea. And it is re- it has been received well and liked. But in my own country... And this is a good opportunity to share this with fellow Papua New Guineans. And yet, I'm, I've been told by my own, you know, government and the committee that I'm not allowed to sing that song in my own country. So, who was pressuring the Papua New Guinea government? That until now, it is still unknown where the pressure coming from. Um, it wasn't explained to us why, at the last minute, the song had to be dropped off. You know, the upset was there, disappointment was there, but they just, like, don't give a shit. You know, it's all what the government and the Pacific Games felt that, you know, it's important to reflect the celebration of the Pacific Games and it's not also to raise the, you know, the awareness and the consciousness to the people that, yes, we come here as a Pacific Island community, you know, enjoy the sportsmanship, but yet not uh, addressing issues that is also relevant and real to the Pacific Island community, like climate change, poverty, corruption. These are very important issues, and that's a good um, place to raise that. The the good thing was that, like George Telek was told straight up and told that he he can only just do one song, whereas um, this other Papua New Guinean singer, he felt that... um, when he heard about it, he knew that, oh, no, this is important 
platform. So they asked about the song that he's going to sing. He didn't tell them. Like he said, whatever songs that we've been rehearsing, and he didn't even wanted to put it on the schedule or in the, the running sheet. And when he went up, and it's about anti-corruption, it's about the leaders, the politicians, don't lie, and you can't lie. And that was that first song that when he sung, that just raises the <laughs> alarm bell from the, um, the games committee, and it made the news the next day as well. Did anyone in the media know that your song had been stopped? No, no one knows until when we were told on the day, on Saturday. So George didn't take it up with anyone else? But when he was there, EMTV, the local TV in Papua New Guinea, were there. So the word just word of mouth just spreads. And so that's when um, the national papers in PNG kind of like follow up and wanting to know why um, the song was dropped, wanted to check in with Telek if it's true or it's just rumors. And George Telek came out publicly and, and expressed his disappointment at the Makoda production and the Pacific Games Committee, why I'm in a country where you can freely express your um, songs through music where it have to be censored and told not to perform that song. Do you or others believe that there was influence from outside the country to stop you singing that song? We believe so. We believe there is an, an outside influence in which we know leading up to the Melanesian Spearhead Group the Indonesian government had offered twenty US million dollars and Papua New Guinea have taken that on board with Fiji government in support of Indonesia's request. And Indonesia's request was was Papua shouldn't be a member at the MSG at all cost. But when Solomon Island government came out and stood to confront both PNG government and Fiji, PNG government and Fiji government knew that they can't deny the fact that this application has met the criteria of the MSG and only to allow an observer status. And then to please Indonesia, it's to, you know, just to give them an associate member from observer to associate in which there is no guidelines up until now for an observer and associate member. So it is a big win for West Papua and a big displeasure and disappointment for Indonesia. But one will ask, where is that money is going now? How is it is being used? And so that's still that question is still um, out there. I raised it um, leading up to MSG to some of the... Um, Journalists around the Pacific, including Nick McLellan, Liam Fox from ABC, I said, has anyone come up to find out about that money, how it's being used and spent by the MSG countries like Papua New Guinea? And yeah, so it still remains a mystery. A great disappointment for you, though. Very, very great disappointment. Given it's Even on the night, we managed to sing a song called Sorong to Samurai. So on the island of New Guinea, Sorong is the west end, Samurai is the east end of the island of New Guinea. So we sang that song. That really get the the moment when people kind of like hear that, yes, this is the song about this one land, one people, and one destiny. But my colleagues on stage didn't tell me that they're going to drop the song halfway just because of the word Papua Merdeka.
I was thinking that okay, despite what you know the upsetting news we had from George Stalek, um, this would be the opportunity. This is the moment. But then, to my surprise, the song was cut halfway, and we didn't even mention the word Papua, and that makes me really, really, really upset. And I didn't want to be on stage, and I just walked out, grabbed my bass guitar, and my other cousin, I was Papuan brother, Sammy Royman. We just walked out from the site, and we went back straight to the place that we we were being accommodated. I want to be out, of, you know, first flight the next morning out of the country and there was some conversations with the the close friends and colleagues that leading up to the the closing ceremony the reason why they invited me is that there's going to be a, a an awareness on West Papua through George Telex song but then there was a big compromise and it's it was a compromise and that was Ronnie Karani who's a current affairs coordinator here at 3CR talking about his experience at the and round the closing ceremony of the 2015 Pacific Games in Port Moresby, Papua New Guinea. This is the The fifth annual Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair will bring together an exciting range of independent booksellers, zinesters, and activist groups. The book fair showcases more than 40 stalls and a program of workshops. Come along to celebrate books, pamphlets and zines, including radical fiction, the anarchist classics and cutting-edge radical writers from around the world. It's a great opportunity to be introduced to new ideas, to challenge your thinking and to network with like-minded folks. It's free and we also provide free childcare. It's all happening at the Abbotsford Convent on Saturday, August 8th from 10am till 6pm and with an after-party in a squatted space late into the night. Find out more at www.amelbournebookfair.org or find us on Facebook. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair, because another world is possible. The Anarchist Book Fair is a 3CR supporter. One less loved one at Christmas. One less loved one on birthdays. A year after the death in custody of 22-year-old Yamaji woman Jalika Du, following her arrest for non-payment of fines of around $1,000, deaths in custody continue. Rally with the Indigenous Social Justice Association of Melbourne to a demand an immediate end to the ongoing deaths in custody. Full implementations of recommendations 87, 92, 102 and all of the recommendations from the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. Justice for Ms. Do and all who have died in custody. Implement measures to give the community control over the police. Build communities, not prisons. Join us on Saturday the 8th of August 2015 at 11am at the old GPO corner of Burke and Elizabeth Streets, Melbourne. For more information, call ISJA Melbourne on 93880062. going to rise up to break these chains and stop these killing Politicians and mainstream media are fueling anti-Muslim hate. Attacks on Muslims are increasing and the fear is causing some women to restrict their movements. Worse, an anti-Muslim political party is launching in October. It's time for people who oppose bigotry to organise. Stand up and speak out against Islamophobia. 
Sign the statement at www.voicesagainstbigotry.org and ask others to do the same. Don't be a bystander. Voices Against Bigotry is a 3CR supporter. This year marks the 70th anniversary of the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Humanitarian organisations around the world have advocated for the prohibition of nuclear weapons since their use in Japan. Yet 70 years later, the global community is still struggling to achieve a nuclear weapons-free world. Right around the country, Australians will be lighting candles and lanterns on the 6th of August to remember the victims of these bombings and to highlight the catastrophic humanitarian consequences of nuclear weapons. Today I'm speaking with Associate Professor Tillman Ruff in the Nossel Institute for Global Health at Melbourne University. He is also International Medical Advisor for the Australian Red Cross. First, Tillman, how far back in history do we need to go for the genesis of the atomic bombing in 1945? Very soon after radioactivity was first discovered in the late 19th century, in um, 1903 already, a physicist called Frederick Soddy recognised that this power could be used potentially to make a weapon that could destroy the Earth, was his wording. That idea sort of bubbled along as nuclear physics developed and it was Hungarian physicist Leo Szilard in the 1930s, 1933, who realised that a chain reaction was possible in uranium and, and possibly other elements and that therefore a bomb was potentially possible. His initial idea was to try and keep it secret, that the scientists who had this knowledge should conspire amongst themselves to keep it secret, not publish it, not let anybody know about it and try and keep it under wraps. As with every other technical development or knowledge that proved fruitless, other scientists didn't play ball, published their work that showed that that was possible. And then in the early 40s, the US embarked on this massive program that then cost $2 billion, which in those days was an extraordinary amount of money, was the largest amount of money that had ever been spent on any specific government program. And it was in part driven by the possibility and therefore for the sort of rising world power to have a new extraordinarily powerful weapon was you know, politically, militarily enormously attractive. But the other key driver that, that I think was key for the scientific expertise to make that possible was the profound fear that many scientists had, particularly scientists from Europe, that Nazi Germany was developing the bomb. They had very substantial uranium deposits in East Germany. They'd been known about for centuries. In fact, it's interesting that when the Russians entered Germany right at the end of the war, before they took Berlin, they occupied the uranium mines in East Germany and began accessing that uranium for their own nuclear weapons program, a really important insight, I think. So so there was great fear that, fear that Nazi Germany could develop a bomb. And many of the nuclear physicists in Europe fled. Many of them were Jewish and, and fled Nazi Germany and were deeply frightened about the possibility of Nazi Germany acquiring a nuclear weapon. And they felt that 
if they had such a weapon, they would have no hesitation to use it. And so with great anguish often and very conflicted emotions, they got involved in a program to try and prevent Nazi Germany being the first or being the only one to have nuclear weapons. One of the saddest and for me the most salutary lessons of that whole period was that when it became clear no later than 1944 that Nazi Germany was not anywhere close to developing a nuclear weapon, the only scientist who decided on that basis there's no reason to continue this and I'm out of this program was Joseph Ortblatt who won a Nobel Peace Prize in 1995 with the Pugwash movement. He was the only one of that large number of scientists who morally decided that it wasn't appropriate for him to proceed with this involvement when it became clear that Nazi Germany didn't have the bomb. And then they worked on two types of bombs, both highly enriched uranium-based, the bomb that was used in Hiroshima, and the plutonium bomb that was used in Nagasaki. The Hiroshima bomb design was so simple and the physics of it so predictable and certain that they didn't need to test that before it was used. The Trinity test that happened in the desert in New Mexico on the 16th of July, so just three weeks before the bombings, was the plutonium bomb design that was used uh, in Nagasaki. And it was actually an Australian physicist, Sir Ernest Titterton, who was the one who pushed the button on that bomb. We were talking about developing a bomb in Nazi Germany. How does Japan come into it? Well, Japan had a nuclear program also, and it wasn't very far advanced. But in 1945, when the bomb was ready, I mean, Japan was really the predominant expanding military aggressor of concern at at that time, having expanded widely into China and Manchuria, across Southeast Asia, you know, incursions widely across the Pacific and and attacks on northern Australia. So so Japan was clearly the target at, at the time when Germany had essentially been defeated, where if the bomb was going to be used, that was where it was to be used. People do say that Japan had already notified that it was going to surrender, that there was no need to drop those bombs? Yes, there's been this really very pervasive myth that has served both sides, the US and Japan, very well politically, that it was the bomb that ended the war. And if it hadn't have been for the use of those weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, then there would have had to be a ground invasion of the Japanese mainland that that would have resulted in horrendous loss of life. The Japanese still had four, an army of four million functioning at that time. That was ready and prepared for an attack from the south and the east, and their plan was to inflict massive casualties on Allied forces that, that invaded. If you look at the reality of the decision-making at the time, Japan was in an extraordinary situation. Over the period from March to August in 1945, So before the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there was this very extensive aerial bombing campaign of almost all of the major cities in Japan. So 66 cities were bombed over that period, extensively carpet-bombed at night, usually with about 500 bombers delivering four to 5,000 tonnes of high explosives on every city. And there were only six cities more than... 100,000 population in Japan at that time that hadn't been bombed 
and only seven between 30,000 and 100,000 population that hadn't been bombed. The worst of those bombings was the bombing of Tokyo on the night of the 9th to the 10th of March in 1945, in which 120,000 people are estimated to have died, and about two-thirds of Tokyo was destroyed or burned. That was still historically remains the largest civilian casualty toll of any bombing of any city. So Japan had already suffered extraordinary losses. Every week there were cities being bombed, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people being killed and displaced, and that didn't force Japan to surrender. I mean, their their leaders were really not concerned about civilian casualties. The Supreme Council, which was the body that you know, really governed Japan really under the leadership of the emperor, didn't even meet in the days after the Hiroshima bombing. And they had word fairly quickly, later that day on the 6th of August, that this was something unusual. There were only two planes, a very big flash, a very large part of the city had been destroyed. They knew that this was something unusual and, in fact, knew that quite quickly that this was a nuclear weapon, a different kind of weapon. But the Supreme Council didn't even meet And the first time that they met to discuss unconditional surrender was on the morning of the 9th of August, the day of the Nagasaki bombing. And what had happened overnight was that the Soviet Union had declared war at midnight on the 8th, had declared war on Japan, and an invasion of Manchuria and the island of Sakhalin towards Russia, which Japan occupied, commenced that morning. So the Japanese faced the threat of Russian troops attacking them from the west where they were unprepared, coming in from the north through Hokkaido, and the potential for a simultaneous attack from the United States and Allied forces from the south and the east was something they couldn't sustain. And within six hours of the announcement of the, that the Soviet Union had entered the war, they convened this meeting to discuss unconditional surrender. They did not do any such thing after the bombings of Hiroshima, and the bombing of Nagasaki really didn't influence that decision either. Well, let's go back to the 6th of August, that morning. It was when children were going to school, wasn't it? It was at 8.15 in the morning. A single plane, the Enola Gay, a B-29 bomber with, with this one single bomb called um, Little Boy was um, with another bomber trailing it, basically to take photographs and document the outcome because it was clearly of high scientific, military, political interest, you know, what would happen with this bomb. It had never been used before. It was a highly enriched uranium bomb. Very simple design, 60 kilograms of 80% uranium-235, highly enriched uranium. Basically just two lumps that were fired together down a cylinder with high explosive, sort of creating a supercritical mass. It was detonated about 580 metres above the ground, pretty much over the centre of Hiroshima, which is quite flat. It's a delta with seven rivers, so it's a very flat area that that meant the damage spread very effectively, as did the subsequent fires. Um, So yes, children were going to school, people were going to work in the morning. And what was that damage? The damage was really very extensive. There were about 330,000 people estimated to be in the city at that time. It was quite densely compact because it was on flat on this delta surrounded by by mountains. The bomb was equivalent of about 15,000 tonnes of high explosive in its yield 
and because it was highly enriched uranium, there was quite a high flux of neutrons in the initial radiation from the bomb. Neutrons are particularly biologically damaging, between 10 and 20 times as damaging for the same amount of energy as other types of, most other types of ionising radiation. So a very large part, virtually the whole of that, of that delta area of the central city was, was severely damaged. I think it was apparent quite quickly that this was um, an unusual bomb, that there was... A lot of people didn't panic because, you know, they were expecting, if there was going to be a serious bombing, to have many, many bombers come. And most of the previous city bombings had happened at night. So this was a single plane trailed by another one in the morning. And a lot of people thought, oh, well, this is a reconnaissance, some sort of surveillance flight, and it weren't, didn't immediately take shelter or a lot of the... Um, air raid warnings didn't sound. So people weren't expecting that level of destruction. But clearly for those that survived, it was, you know, an unprecedented event. I mean, this cataclysm of, of noise and this massive explosion and flash and and then, you know, fires ignited over virtually the whole of the, the urban area that then burned over the, that day and the ensuing day. And also black rain, this radioactive fallout was carried inland and fell over the hours later on the 6th and on the 7th and spread some of the radioactivity around. And then, of course, it became apparent later when people who didn't have major injuries started to... their hair started to fall out, they started to have bleeding in their gums, nose, mouth from various body sites and then developed fever and succumbed severe diarrhoea and often bloody diarrhoea. So these radiation symptoms that appeared some days or weeks after people were apparently recovering from other injuries was completely unknown. So there were a number of, of features about it, but even in the early period it was clear that one plane, one bomb had done an unprecedented amount of damage. And what percentage of the people did survive that initial day? days? There are about 90,000 people killed that day, about 140,000 by the end of that year, of 1945. The problem with the injured was that the injuries are complex and many, most of the people, about 70% of those that were injured, had not just physical injuries, trauma, broken bones, ruptured lungs, you know, traumatised internal organs, uh, ruptured eardrums, etc. But they also had burns from either the initial heat flash from the bomb if they were exposed or from the subsequent fires and they often had radiation effects as well. And the combination of more than one of those things is very difficult and demanding to treat and you're much more likely to have a bad outcome if you've got you know, a broken leg plus radiation injury or you know, the combination of things is, is difficult to treat. There were virtually no health services functioning. More than 90% of the doctors and nurses in Hiroshima were either killed or injured themselves. 42 of the 45 hospitals were completely non-functional. Uh, the Red Cross Hospital, for some unusual reason, probably just the geometry in relation to the bomb, physically was still standing and care was very basic care was able to be provided but when the first international humanitarian assistance arrived in the shape of the red cross you know the reports that the red cross 
workers sent back, you know, still make very chilling reading about, you know, the absolutely overwhelming demand, you know, 100,000 injured people with virtually no resources to treat them. And the doctors who did survive, who described their experience, was essentially one of despair and powerlessness, you know, being able to, to do essentially nothing without modern functioning hospitals and capacity that had never been present initially but was totally devastated by the bombing itself. You are listening to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR and I'm speaking with Associate Professor Tilman Ruff on this, the 70th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Are you talking just about Hiroshima there or are you talking about Nagasaki as well? No, in Nagasaki the same thing happened. Yeah. Uh, Nagasaki is in a is a hilly city sort of spread along a valley. So physically the damage was more contained because it's not flat and there were areas sort of shadowed by hills. So the area of damage is about 7 square kilometers roughly that was completely destroyed in in Nagasaki and it's substantially large almost double that in Hiroshima. Somewhat um, fewer people died uh, in Nagasaki, about 70,000 roughly, um, about the same number of injured. So the total mortality from those two, by today's standards, quite small tactical size weapons um, was around 230,000 or so. Did the doctors and nurses and the hospitals know how to treat the people? They knew how to treat physical injuries. Uh, burns are very difficult and demanding to treat, and in those days, um, you know, even less, you couldn't do an awful lot. You could basically just, you know, dress, and, and if surgery was available, it could be done. But, but uh, really, what they had no idea about was, was radiation and its effects, and, and, of course, the capacity to manage severely radiation-injured people was really not available. So... In a normal setting, when care is available in a nuclear accident or in you know a nuclear plant accident or something, the acute dose of radiation that is lethal is sort of somewhere between about four and six gray is the, the units. In Hiroshima, it's estimated that the lethal dose was not much more than two gray. So people with much lower doses died because of the lack of care. Can we talk about Wilfred Burchett for a couple of minutes, the first journalist who who arrived there. He called it the Atomic Plague. Burchett was an extraordinary journalist and Australian and it, and I think it was a remarkable and very courageous and insightful initiative on his part, you know, to realise how momentous an event this was and, and to go and document it. Uh, there was quite a blanket of really secrecy and cover-up about the aftermath of the bombings. The US government, which then became the occupying power in Japan, was pretty much in control in the first few years. They were very interested in studying the effects of the bombing. They set up a thing called the Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission that had sort of perfunctory Japanese involvement initially, but was mainly American military doctors, you know, American personnel who evaluated the effects of the bombings in both cities. There were severe limitations on covering the effects. Uh, Journalists were basically prohibited from describing the aftermath of the bombing and its effects for years afterwards. Those voices of people who had some, you know, were not totally constrained under that system, the Red Cross witnesses, people who were POWs, 
at that time, Tom Uren, Labor stalwart, died in January of this year, was a prisoner of war, having done several years of hard labour near Nagasaki, and described the bombing there of this, you know, extraordinary crimson sky, much, much brighter than any sunset he'd ever seen. There are such accounts. But Birchett was extraordinarily courageous in, as part of his professional journalistic role documenting those effects and had great difficulty publishing his stories out of that experience. But yes, it was the first time that in the wider civilian media in the world, principally in the UK he was publishing at that time, uh, that the account of the extent of the devastation and the delayed radioactive effects was first provided. Can you talk a bit more about the survivors and their children, what it's been like for those people in Japan? It's been very difficult for them, and they're not just Japanese, but they're also Koreans in particular who were there as you know, factory labour and, and various other sorts of work for the military enterprise, that Japan having occupied Korea in the war. There were several hundred thousand, quite a lot of hibaksha, these what they termed the survivors, people who had been exposed, who had faced really quite a lot of difficulties. I mean, it was an extraordinarily devastated environment that they faced in both cities. And really, you know, the courage and tenacity to rebuild those in the incredibly impoverished post-war environment of a country that was devastated and very little food, very little of anything, was quite remarkable. So firstly, they had lost many of them everything. They had had suffered profound grief from loss of of family members and loved ones and friends and really the whole of their communities. There are schools where virtually every child died or, you know, I've known survivors who, you know, were one of a handful of hundreds of children at their school who survived. And there's extraordinary grief related to that and also survivor guilt, you know, why did I survive and others didn't and... Imagine suicide must have been pretty yeah, so strong. They've, so they're, and also, of course, then there's the lingering effects of radiation and, and the emerging knowledge that this exposure, even if they look and feel okay now, you know, this lingering exposure could come and strike them down with, you know, a cancer or some other chronic illness at any time for the rest of their lives and it's a risk that they constantly face the worry and also the discrimination that results from that. They were often restricted in employment opportunities, they were tended to be socially ostracised, people didn't understand radiation, were worried that somehow they could be contaminated from the hibaksha, which of course is not the case. So many people described difficulties with relationships, difficulties finding a partner, difficulties getting married, having children. If they did have children being racked by fear about what they might be inflicting or harm they might be passing on to their to the second generation. And, of course, the cancer rates are still going up in those survivors. So they're ageing. It's now 70 years since the bombing. So there's, the number of survivors is rapidly diminishing, and there are none of them are under 70, of course. They're still getting illnesses related to that bombing, and they will have high rates of cancer and other non-communicable diseases, so-called heart attacks and strokes, gut diseases, respiratory diseases, at increased rates for the rest of their lives. But a few of them do have the courage to go overseas or go around different places and actually tell their stories. We've had them here in Australia. Yes, and it's a really wonderful 
thing that many of them have done. One of the things that's impressed me so, it's so humbling about them is despite that extraordinary experience and suffering, which would justify or, you know, lots of anger, lots of wanting retribution, I've never heard a whiff. I've heard any, none of the Hibaksha and, I, you know, hundreds over the years that have ever shown any other sentiment other than, of course, profound sorrow at what happened, but the overwhelming desire that to share what happened to them to help ensure that this never happens to anybody else anywhere ever again. The Hibaksha organisations are very active in that, and they've also, of course, been very active in trying to promote adequate care and compensation and recognition for Hibaksha both in Japan but also for Hibaksha outside Japan. There are Hibaksha in other countries, there are Hibaksha in Australia and of course justice, care, compensation, recognition for the Korean Hibaksha who were sort of doubly discriminated has been pretty slow in coming. And what role has the Japanese government played since then in supporting these people? For the Japanese government initially, you know, the myth that it was the bomb that ended the war suited them also very well. So as a country that was occupied, they were quite severely constrained by what they could do. But the Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission, that was initially largely an American initiative uh, that provided some care but in part sort of study and source of some resentment for the Hibakusha. And so in the end, a number of local Japanese organisations developed to provide care for the Hibakusha. That became the Radiation Effects Research Foundation, as it still is, as a joint initiative of both governments. That is certainly something that the Japanese government has done. And there are now quite reasonable, I wouldn't say completely adequate, but reasonable compensation and care programs for Hibakusha. But they're quite restricted and they're quite exclusive and they don't include adequately people who were outside the area who were subjected to fallout, people who came into the area when it was still quite radioactive soon afterwards and particularly Koreans or non-Japanese and especially if they're outside Japan they've been very poor and slow and it's really taken active consistent organisation of the Hibakusha and pressure from them to really get adequate recognition. If you went to Hiroshima or Nagasaki today what would you see? of what happened in 1945. Both cities have remarkably been rebuilt and, you know, are thriving, bustling centres of uh, cities and really quite beautiful settings. Hiroshima and its delta with this World Heritage Island of, you know, beautiful shrines and forests uh, just off the coast. And Nagasaki has always been one of the most multicultural cities in Japan. It was where the Portuguese first arrived. It's one of the uh, cities that has the most Christian influence. So it's often been a port of entry for foreign visitors and influences to Japan. Superficially, if you arrive, they look like normal cities. In both cities, there are places that have been severely damaged near Ground Zero that are still preserved. There are wonderful museums that document the history of what happened. And in Hiroshima, for me, the most moving thing is is either to ride a bike or just walk in the early morning and visit the peace park the the, the memorial the, the dome and and the various places and memorials the one that's um perhaps the most poignant for me is a mound uh, that's really just a f- very 
nondescript kind of mound that's that, that's unmarked with no great structure that contains the remains of about 50,000 people that were those that were not able to be identified. And it's just a simple mound in the park. 70 years on, how many nuclear weapons are there still About 15,500. And what's being done or tries to be done to get rid of them? I think now, even though you wouldn't necessarily know about it from the media, I find now really the most encouraging and hopeful time since the end of the Cold War, which was really an enormously squandered opportunity when Reagan and Gorbachev in their Geneva and Reykjavik summits actually agreed were virtually on the the cusp of agreeing to get rid of their nuclear weapons within a decade. You know, that possibility really became palpable. So it's long unfinished business. But I think what's exciting now is this so-called humanitarian initiative, this movement of civil society, of most of the governments of the world who don't have nuclear weapons, the 185 of them that don't, to kind of bring democracy to disarmament and hold the nuclear weapon states to account and to learn the lessons of how we've managed to ban and progressively eliminate all of the other kind of inhumane, indiscriminate weapons of mass destruction, chemical, biological, and also cluster munitions and landmines, where treaties were enacted that have said these weapons have drawn a line and said these weapons are illegal and unacceptable and must never be used and then have been progressively eliminated. And there have been now three major international conferences over the last uh, two years focused on the real impacts of the weapons and not the arcane justifications for their continued deployment. There are now 113 countries that have signed a humanitarian pledge which commits them to want to negotiate with other governments and partners to fill the legal gap that exists around nuclear weapons, that we have treaties for biological and chemical weapons, cluster munitions and landmines, nuclear weapons, the worst of all weapons, the most destructive of all, are the only weapon of mass destruction that we don't have an explicit prohibition treaty for. The states that don't have the weapons obviously can't eliminate them, but they can change the game and they can fill that gap that there isn't a specific prohibition. So they could negotiate uh, a treaty that bans nuclear weapons and provides for their elimination. And I'm very hopeful that pretty soon this year, hopefully, uh, and the 70th anniversary year of those terrible bombings is long due time to get on with this, is the really the appropriate milestone, as the Mexican government has said when they hosted the second of those conferences, to start negotiating. And particularly after the Non-Proliferation Treaty Review Conference, this five-yearly conference of the main disarmament non-proliferation treaty we have, which happened uh, over April, May in New York, failed to deliver anything useful. It's clear now that something else is necessary. So I'm very hopeful that a number of countries are currently preparing to begin a process of negotiating a treaty to finally ban nuclear weapons. This Thursday in Melbourne, the 70th anniversary, the Australian premiere of a film, and I believe you've already seen the film. I have seen uh, parts of the film. I haven't seen all of it. Yes, there's a a, a commemoration at uh, St Paul's Cathedral, and then we're showing a remarkable film which was produced in 1953 uh, in Japan 
that initially involved Akira Kurosawa, the, the wonderful Japanese director, but he didn't see it through, unfortunately. But it was a film that has only recently kind of resurfaced and only been shown in Japan in the last uh, couple of years. It was made with extraordinary participation of Hiroshima citizens, about 90,000 citizens in Hiroshima. Students, teachers were involved in making this film that attempts to document the, the horror that was the bombing, both because of its size and coming so soon after the bombings. It was really the a very major attempt at, from the people of Hiroshima to, to tell their story. It's somewhat sad that it's taken so long for it to be shown. It's not been shown in Australia before. It's not crafted as a as a modern dramatic movie with you know very brilliant cinematography and so forth. But when you know what it is, that 90,000 people in Hiroshima in 1953 pulled and raised funds to make a film to tell their story, it's a pretty significant historic document. Just finally, Tillman, you've been involved in this campaign against nuclear weapons for many, many years. What has it meant for you over those years? I've felt that it's a very rewarding and really the most important work I could be doing. So if I can play some small part in this great unfinished business of getting nuclear weapons out of our world. So it's not just for us, it's for everything else that's alive in our world and for all future generations. So I would like to hope that it could be in in my lifetime. I know that that's possible, but whether or not it is at this point is really the most urgent humanitarian imperative that we face. You've been listening to Associate Professor Tillman Ruff, who's at the Nossel Institute for Public for Global Health at Melbourne University, and he's also International Medical Advisor for the Australian Red Cross, speaking about the 70th anniversary of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And just to talk a little bit more about the film, which is on, on Thursday evening at the Collide Theatre, RMIT, which is 360 Swanson Street, Melbourne. It's from the, the evening from 6.30 to 8.30, 630 to 9.30. Before that, there's a vigil and procession at 5.30 on the steps of St Paul's Cathedral. And following that vigil and procession, they will be going up to the Collide Theatre, as I said, at 360 Swanson Street to be there by 6.30. Just a little bit more on the film. The International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, ICANN, invites you to a special screening of the extraordinary historical drama Hiroshima 1953. Around 90,000 Hiroshima residents performed as extras in the film, helping to recreate the horror scenes of the 6th of August 1945. Because of the film's controversial nature, it was rarely screened at the time and was only recently rediscovered and brought back to life. The film's narrative is based on essays written by school students who survived the atomic bombing. Some half a million teachers across Japan are said to have helped finance its production the event will also inc- include a Japanese musical performance and proceeds go toward ICANN's work to achieve a global ban on nuclear weapons. 
Despite the catastrophic human consequences of any use of nuclear weapons, these are the only weapons of mass destruction not yet prohibited under international law. So that's Thursday. First, the vigil at St Paul's Cathedral, 5.30, and then a procession up to the Clyde Theatre, 360 Swanson Street in the city.